This is Greg Fraser, and you're listening to the Cinematography Podcast. The following podcast contains explicit language. You're listening to the Cinematography Podcast presented by Hot Rod Cameras, a program about the art, craft, and philosophy of the moving image and the people who make it happen. Coming to you from the world headquarters of Hot Rod Cameras in Hollywood, California, are your hosts, Ben Rock and Ilya Friedman. Hey, Ben. Hey, Ilya. How's it going? Hey, it's going pretty well. Here you are on Zoom. Look at you. You're looking well. I definitely have the uh, quarantine haircut, which must end with the phrase, all it, whatever it is. You have the healthy glow of someone who's having trouble with their uh, air conditioning unit. Yeah, AC is not, yeah. yeah you know, it's, it, when it rains, it pours. Uh, it's all good. <laughs> It'll be fixed before you know it. You won't have to, you know, be freezing. Yes, <laughs> that's being freezing is not the problem. Anyway, L- hey, L.A. in July. Hey, uh, Ben, who who's our guest on the show today? Amazing. Greg Frazier. Very excited to interview him. Although I will tell everyone ahead of time, he does not talk about the two movies that you most want to hear him talk about. Uh, Dune and Batman. Exactly. You the know, Batman. You know, okay. Well, he talks about lots of other good stuff. And he's he got talks about of- some great stuff. Holy crap. He's a fascinating person. He's got a great story. And we were unbelievably lucky to have him on the show. We, t- we talk a lot about Mandalorian. I mean, there's a lot of good, there's a lot of good I, stuff in there. I, I mean, not to put too fine a point on it, but with what Greg did on the Mandalorian is going to ripple through all television production moving forward for the foreseeable future. What he innovated, which could be argued was like taking an old technique, rear screen projection, and then applying Unreal Engine to it and then figuring out how to put a camera with a sensor on it so that it knew where it was in 3D space enabled them to make the Mandalorian almost entirely on a soundstage and setting it in the desert and setting it in all kinds of, you know, uh, including space, lots of outer space stuff. And I mean, I love baby Yoda, obviously, <laughs> but I feel like when you when you look at the Mandalorian, I feel like 10 years from now, we're going to look at the Mandalorian and say that was a pivotal moment when TV production and probably all production changed. And granted, it was an evolution to get it here. Movies like Gravity were doing similar things, you know, whatever, six, eight years ago. But Mandalorian to me is when a technology finally became applicable in the here and now and got used in a way that uh, I certainly didn't see coming. So we do talk to Greg quite a bit about the Mandalorian, hopefully not too much about the Mandalorian, but uh, his body of work is amazing and uh, a very interesting, funny, cool guy. Yeah. And you know what? Uh, this this whole episode is going to have sort of a ripply current of technology because, of course, our close focus, which we were just uh, sort of uh, prefacing right before we hit record on this episode, is about deep fakes. Uh, so you're familiar with deep fakes. I think most I, people now I, I'm are. super familiar with deep fakes. There's a YouTube channel called Control Shift Fake that I, I watch everything they do. And maybe you've seen them. They uh, they put um, Jim Carrey on Jack Nicholson in The Shining and like they they do stuff like that and it's pretty amazing. Well, this technology can be used for good, which it is in this uh, new HBO uh, documentary called Welcome to Chechnya in which they use deep fake technology to obscure the faces of subjects in the documentary that need to remain anonymous. So uh, what's what's happening is, is that they're taking someone else's face and putting it on someone else's body, and then you cannot tell what that person looks like because, of course, uh, there could be serious uh, repercussions if uh, if through the course of this documentary, people knew the identity of certain subjects. 
It's like the high-tech version of when 60 Minutes would put like a fake mustache and a nose on somebody. Fake mustache, nose, put them in shadows, mosaiced out their face, you know, that yeah. sort of thing. And and you can do that with voices, too. So you can have, you know, uh, different voices, different faces. It's a, it's a powerful uh, way to... Um, well, and, and for people who don't know what deepfake is, it's using machine learning and uh, a million zillion shots of somebody's face. So movie stars are easy to do this with because you have... You know, you, you can Lots take Jim Carrey and you can, yeah, you can, so a computer can learn what Jim Carrey uh, looks like. And then it's mapping the face of the one being analyzed in 3D space and then putting the other face on top of the original face and matching the lighting and matching basically everything about, you know, it, it's shocking to me when you look at these things, they get the teeth right, they get all kinds of stuff right. And uh, I know that we, I, I had made them my uh, short end some time ago, but Corridor Crew had done a thing where they they wanted to learn deepfake technology. So they got somebody who could do a not wonderful impersonation of Keanu Reeves. And then they used machine learning to do a deepfake of Keanu Reeves, like uh, diffusing a situation where, where a grocery store or something was being robbed or a quickie mart was being robbed and so they did it all with deep fake and i remember thinking like if the guy pretending to be keanu reeves sounded more like him i could almost buy it like if you got somebody who really could sell the performance i could buy it you know this technology of course not just used for uh entertainment and even though it's coming like a freight train towards uh entertainment near you and is already happening in documentaries like welcome to chechnya it's also being used for evil deep fake technology was used to attack an activist couple uh, according to uh, reuters as terrible as this is it shows a wonderful example of here is a situation in which a person is completely impersonated uh, by deep fake technology. They they claimed to be an author and a newspaper uh, took a an op ed piece and published it in which uh, supposedly this uh, student at the English University of Birmingham he you know sent his photo and sent all of his bio and all the stuff. But it turns out his photo was all deep fake. He was he wasn't real. And the story that was published uh, was basically uh, attacking some people, claiming that they were anti semites. And it was written in a Jewish newspaper. And then, of course, by the time that this all came out, they found out, well, you know, this is, you know, totally this hack attack job on these people. Uh, turns out um, that student doesn't exist and the university has no record of the student and all the phone numbers and everything else was fake. It was all set up basically to get this sort of attack story out there. And now the newspaper has some splaining to do. They have to go back and they have to figure out exactly, you know, what went wrong. How were they so fooled by this uh, by this person? Well, the thing is that the the technology, and I learned this from the Corridor Crew video about the Keanu Reeves thing, it's like the software to do this is available to pretty much anyone. I could download it, you could download it, and if you have the time uh, and the computer power to spare, you can sit here, you know, you can sit around and and do this all day, all night. You know, there's a famous piece of video where uh, they used Jordan Peele, who did, on Key and Peele, he did a funny impersonation of Barack Obama, although not entirely convincing because it was kind of a caricature but they took him and had him do a whole thing about don't believe bullshit and then deep faked it with barack obama and it's like it you do watch and go like well uh, that, that, like you buy the lip sync you buy a lot of it i do think that like early days of cgi when you first saw you know jurassic park and you're like oh my god this could make me believe anything and then you know 10 years later you look back on the first jurassic park and you're like eh it's very good for its time, but it's, you know, not entirely convincing. I think that there are some fingerprints that deep fakes tend to leave and things they don't get perfectly right. And that's okay. There are, but it is getting 
harder and closer as the technology gets better. Of course, it's going to be harder and harder no, to, to no, I, it out. Obviously, I think it's going to get like that, but I also think that as it does, our eyes are going to get more attuned to, oh, that's a deep fake. We're going to be like, oh, that's not really their voice. That's not really, you know, like, I don't think that we're going, if, if, it, if it becomes so convincing that we don't know what's real and what's not, then we're just going to eventually stop trusting video. Cause yeah, I think, you know, I, I think we're on our way. I mean, I because, think on, you know, I mean, like, video and stills. Yeah. I mean, I, I just think it's, uh, I don't know. I I think that I tend to look at the positives and go like, hey, this is a way to put your actor's face on a stuntman and put a, you know, do a stunt in a movie that would have been physically impossible with, you know, George Clooney or whatever, you know, like, you know, the liability would have been insane. But you can get a stunt person to to, a stunt performer to do it and then make it and then see George Clooney's face uh, mirroring, you know, the stuntman's face. Like I always like looking at old old not old but older stunts uh like i was just watching fight club recently because mm. I'm, I'm like that and there's like a shot where uh where edward norton gets thrown down a flight of stairs it's obviously a stunt guy but he lands in such a way that his arm is obscuring his face in the foreground at the end and i think a lot of stunt people are excellent at doing stuff like that so that you can't tell it's not the movie star and i feel like well, if you if you just told the stunt person land however you're going to land, and we're going to make you look like Edward Norton, and it doesn't matter, then you know we could have uh, more thrilling uh, entertainments. But but I don't really believe that we're going to get to a point where uh, I will refuse to believe any video that I'm shown. No, but I think there's going to be more of this. This just uh, this. Oh sure. Th- th- this first example. Uh, I just something. think we're going to start. I, I just think that it leaves fingerprints. It's not perfect. And I'm sure if you even got down to the pixel level and started pixel peeping, you'd be like, oh, OK, this was shot on, you know, this camera. And then and then the overlay of the face is is an algorithm that doesn't match it. And, and it, there will be a way to analyze it. I, I believe that there is going to be some money to the person who comes up with a patented fingerprint watermarking technology that then proves beyond a, uh, you know, a, a blockchain of video that. that then says this this video is original and was not corrupted in any way or was not mm. faked and uh, there will be people who will try to imitate that I'm sure but if you can but there are ways be- that you can pixel peep on on virtually anything and say like you know even like if you take a video let's say you upload a video to YouTube and then down and then rip it off of YouTube and upload it onto Facebook every time you've done that there's like certain algorithmic things that have happened to the video that can be analyzed and and found so you can sort of find the provenance of a video so if you say okay this this is video that was shot on you know whatever sony news camera of 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 uh you know senator so-and-so and uh but the face is a different face like we, we, you i can tell with my eyes looking at most deep fakes that the faces don't exactly match you can but you're gonna have a much harder time with a still photo and you're gonna have oh, a much to be har- sure you're gonna have a much and and that's what's starting right now it's starting with photos the photos are well, photos but you are, don't even need it for a photo. You can just Photoshop stuff into a still photo. You can, but I mean, it's it's different when it doesn't match anyone, and it's you know, the Photoshop definitely leaves telltale signs. But when the whole thing's generated inside of a computer, including the background, it becomes a lot harder to tell. So sure, yeah. it's just you know, in most deepfakes, 
some part of it is generated in the real world and some part of it is generated in a computer simulation. There's a lot of deep fakes that are happening now with people. And this is why I, when we talked about before, I said that models, supermodels in particular, will be the first people out of business uh, because of deep fakes. The first people who really do lose their jobs, uh, because when it comes to still photos and you want to generate, you know, your next spokesperson, you don't have quite as much control over lighting and some I mean, other things yet. How's that going to work but, at Paris Fashion Week on the runway? You're not, you can, yeah, you know, like, well, wheel out your Macintosh. I'm talking about like your uh, on your screen, virtual yeah. only. So, but uh, but yes, models, the supermodels of the world, you know, advertising soap and perfume and everything else. They're the first people who are going to get hit. Actors have quite a while left, but models are, are models, especially catalog type in particular. They're going to just say, like, oh, we just need a person. Boop, there it is. There's our person, and we put whatever it is on it. It's going to feel like wag the dog. I don't agree. Anyway, uh, <laughs> all right, great. Well, uh, well, well, the future will, will prove one of us right and one of us wrong. Sure. So, hey, uh, let's get to the interview with Greg Frazier. Here is Greg Frazier. The Cinematography Podcast Interview. All right, so we are here on our uh, special COVID-19 Zoom series of uh, interviews. Uh, with uh, amazing cinematographer Greg Fraser. Thank you so much. Thank you. A thousand thank yous for coming on and, and making uh, time to talk to us. Yeah, you're completely welcome. Thanks for having me on. It's, it's good to talk. Yeah, uh, we're going to go ahead and say up front, just to save anyone time, that two of the projects that we're, we're all very excited to uh, see of his, uh, the upcoming The Batman and Dune, we are not discussing those at all, except for just to say that he's, he's shot them or he's shooting them. The Batman was shut down thanks to COVID-19, so we, we may get into that a little bit later. But first, I always like to start by kind of asking my basic question, which is uh, you're handed a script and you read it. What is it that you see when you read the script? I see a whole heap of words on a page that don't make much sense to me until I speak to a director about what they're doing. You know, I can... I mean, that mm. that's the very simple, smart answer, which is not actually that true, but... You know, the reality of what I try and do is I try and reserve judgment about what my opinion is. Of course, I mm. absolutely get a mental picture because that's impossible not to, particularly on a well-written, well-conceived script. But more often than not, you know, I'm either reading a script then talking to a director about it or I'm talking to a director about a film that they're developing and then reading a script. So therefore, I can either have an idea based on our discussions or I can then reserve judgment, reserve my ideas until I speak to a director. And, you know, mm. often a director will, will come at from a number of different ways. Some directors will will have a very strong visual opinion about what it should be and how it should feel. And others will be like, well, let's discuss what it should look like. Let's discuss how it should feel. And I love both of those approaches. You know, I, I can't say that one appeals to me more than the other. I love fantastic visual directors that know exactly where they want to put the camera and exactly how they do it, want to do it. And also other people who really want to uh, have a full collaboration at, or allow me to, to guide and lead. So the correct answer is really like I, I, I try and make sure that I'm reading it with the right perspective and that mm. and if I have to read it twice after I've spoken to the director or met the director, then I do so. Now, th there are some instances, you know, scripts notoriously hard to read. Well, I find them no notoriously hard to read because – you know, I'm, I'm reading where they are, and then I'm backtracking, going, sorry, is it day, night? Okay, it's dark. Okay, it's moody. Like, I try and put a mental picture to it, and in doing so, it kind of makes the flow quite hard. For me, anyway, again, I'm, I clearly specialize in making pictures and not reading things. But so it, it it's kind <laughs> of a... Um, 
something that I try and read after the director's given me a mental picture so that I can skim over all of the, the business of scripts and I can get into how it feels, what the character's doing and what the story's doing. Part of what I'm, I'm also kind of looking for when I ask these questions is kind of a sense of what is it that you see in your head when you start to see it? So do you, and, and the question I used to ask, and I, I'm kind of phasing it out because I feel like it's, uh, it's a little pat, but like the question was mostly, do you see it in composition? Do you see it in lighting? Do you, you know, like what is it, what kinds of things do you see when you start seeing it, when you start kind of formulating your approach? I see, I see a tone, you know, I see a, I see a blurred vision of, of what the film feels like, you know, when you're watching Mm -hmm. it, what, are your hairs on your arms standing on end? Are your, is your heart breaking? Is your, um, are you, you know, like not individual necessary character moments, but, but the tone of the film throughout, you know, and that's the thing that I think informs everything. And it's, it's wonderful again, to have done a number of different styles of movie and different with different directors and different subjects so that I can flex different muscles. Like I can flex the kind of the, the, the muscles of reportage on Zero Dark Thirty versus the very languid, slow-moving cameras on, say, Foxcatcher, which, you know, there were two films that I did side by side um, and they, they couldn't be more different, which I love. I love the fact that I got to do both of those films and have both of those opportunities to do vastly different tones of films. That's the thing that I read first. It's like a blurred vision of what the film feels like. Now, mm. obviously, there are times where you read something in a script and you're like, oh, you, you sort of, you get a big knot in your in your throat because you're not technically sure how to do that. Like, you know, on Let Me In, the film I did with Matt Reeves, you know, there's a, a scene in the forest, uh, in the snow-capped forest uh, in the middle of the night. And when I read it, instantly the first thing I thought of wasn't, you know, oh, what's the art involved here? What's the tone? I thought, holy shit, I've got to be in a forest at night in the snow and I have to figure out how to light that and not make it look like there's a big balloon or a big light source. So yeah, unfortunately, sometimes when you read, when I read, I, some, I, have, to, I have to distance myself from the technical because otherwise I start to read that scene and rather than thinking about, what that scene should be from a mood perspective. I start going, oh, okay, is that condors or balloons? And But then the balloons like the snow and the snow's white and the trees are black and there's no, like it's contrasty. So suddenly my mind starts wandering into a place where it shouldn't be. I should actually just come back to the core of the story and, and read it for what it is. So in some ways, you know, I kind of wish that, that, take scene headers out and scene locations out so I can just read the story and, you know, anyway, that, that, that would be my dream, like a novel. That's a cool idea, actually. Yeah, right? <laughs> Particularly for those of us that, that much prefer watching films than reading films, you know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, the slug lines are, it's, it's always funny to look at them because they're basically there for the production manager more than anyone else. And yeah. there's only one production manager on a movie and no one else needs all that information, but, you know, we're constantly uh, obsessing over over those slug lines, and uh, you kind of answered a question that uh, Ilya always asks, and I don't I don't ask enough, but it's sort of the you want me to ask yeah, it. Yeah, why don't you go ahead and ask it, Ilya? My question that I kick off every interview is: my belief is that the best DPs, the best cinematographers, are part artist and part plumber. Yep. 
And where you come down on that line, where you come down on the on the plumber line versus artist line, affects very much sort of uh, your style and your working and everything else. Because of course, there's a lot of uh, human resource management that comes into being a DP that a lot of a lot of people don't think about. Yep. It's just like you know having to to marshal uh, all these people, and then also having to be technically savvy to be able to get what you want out of the the technology. And that could also include surrounding yourself with other very technical people. But I also meet DPs who are 100% artists, yes. and if 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 they did not have those people around them, I I don't think they could they could make their day. So where where on the spectrum of extreme artist or extreme plumber do you, do you think you come down? Do you come down a little bit more to one side, a little bit more to the other? Yeah, I mean, I, definitely. And I and I it's a good question because I've been having this conversation recently, particularly as it comes as it relates to the technology in Mandalorian. But getting to that later, it's very important. Well, I shouldn't say this very important because that implies that somebody who's a full, a full plumber can't do the job of a DP, right? I mean, that's that implies that, which is not true. And it also implies that the person who literally doesn't know where to put the eye, if he puts his eye to in front of the, his or her eye to the front of the lens or the back of the lens, like there are some people that don't know where to put their <laughs> eye. And the thing is that I say that sort of mockingly, but I, I, the reality is that to be a DP it requires a whole different set of skills and a whole and everyone has a different set of skills and that's what makes it so interesting you know the person who doesn't know which which hole to look in you know can can get a feel for a scene and light something in a beautiful way that the person who's full plumber can't now obviously it's very rare that there's somebody at both ends both extremes of that but i would like to think that i land more on the art side knowing that the technology is there only to support the art side. Now, I also get a bit of excitement out of the technology as well. Like, I'm not a full technophobe. I mean, I still don't know how to program my Apple TV. And, you know, there's, there's, I'm a little bit of, a, of an old man when it comes to the tech. But at the same time, it's when technology goes to help the director spend more time with their actors on set, which is when I start to get excited by it. It's not because mm. it's fancy and new and shiny and it's, it's this, that or the other. Like, I don't give two craps about that. It's like, does this technology help or does it hurt? And I would like to think that I'm more in the artistic bent and I use all the technology as a tool and as a, as a help rather than a hindrance, but some may disagree. I mean, some may put me dead set in the middle, but I would like to prefer, I'd like to be sort of closer to the outside. That's really interesting um, because you're known for actually embracing a lot of new technologies too that... Uh, Maybe I would say people who tend to be a little bit more on the art side tend to be a little bit more technophobic, and they're mm-hmm. not really willing to try something that doesn't say airy on the side of it, <laughs> well, or it doesn't say. Yep. Uh, also, like what, you know, something uh, like, like the Mandalorian is pushing technology in ways that no one's. I mean, it, it it's kind of using a technology not designed to do what you're doing to create just un- unbelievably high production values and amazing visuals that would never have been possible even five years ago. Yep. I'm going to disagree with you there, Ben. I, that technology was designed exactly for it. It's just now reaching the mainstream, but it has been around for, well, for quite un, a while. Unreal so. Engine wasn't designed to you know, move backgrounds around a projection surface that way. I'm just speaking in general of the of the, the background. I don't mean to, to argue with you here in the middle of, of Greg's interview. I'll argue. But, uh, I'll, we'll go. We'll, we should go. <laughs> All right. Um, well, Greg, where, where, do you, where do you weigh in on this? Front row seat. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I see. I mean, if, if we're talking about this technology, right? This technology, nothing about this technology is new, which I guess, guess is the point that you're raising. Like nothing about the individual components of this technology is new. Like 3D gaming engine, it's been around for years, right? Obviously not to the level that it's at now. LED yeah. screens, been around for years. Um, motion tracking, been around for years. 
it just so happens that right now in history, all of those things have convalesced together to be shootable on on camera, on a high-res camera, so the, LED, the pixel pitch is small enough, um, high enough quality that the, the quality of the color of the light coming from it is high enough, uh, the the workability of the 3D gaming engine is is just good enough to do kind of very simple shapes. Bear in mind, it's still only very simple shapes. It's not complicated, kind of fine grasses and things like that. It's very still very cubular construction. It's not like in 10 years we're gonna look back at Mandalorian and go, that was so old, you know, in terms of the, <laughs> in terms of the technology. So right now it's reached a point where it's just usable. You know what I mean? And and Fortunately, the people that were ahead of us in terms of using LEDs, like Chivo used it on, on Gravity for interactive light. Claudio used it on Kaczynski. Oblivion. Which one was that? Oblivion, yes. But, but reprojection yeah. or projection, but without interactive. So everyone's been using elements of this technology for a long time. It just so happens that this was a, a product that was able to be to, able to utilize it. We had the backing of one of the best post companies in the world with ILM, one of the best studios in the world with Lucasfilm, and also the the material to make it shine, as in a, a guy in a in a chrome helmet. So yeah. I, I kind of liken it a little bit to you know the, the the Model T Ford or the first car. And again, I don't know my history with cars and stuff, but I liken it a bit to that because all the parts in a car when the car first got built wasn't necessarily built just for a car like the engines were, st- were engines that were used in trains or carriages or whatever they weren't necessarily just for that purpose but they were then bought together for that purpose and then from there cars got more specialized and they started designing different motors and rotary engines and electric motors and diesel and so so things things evolved and i apologize for any ignorance about the evolution of the car but I see some similarities because... We're going to get some angry emails from people who restore Model A Fords. Exactly. And they're going to call me an absolute idiot, which is fine because that would be right. (laughs) That'd be right. But what I do do know is that that they've got... That all the components of these systems are all not proprietary. They're all just off the shelf. It just happens that those the, the people at ILM and Lucasfilm and John Favreau and myself were able to bring these all together with our different backgrounds and our different bents, John from a producing perspective, me from a visual perspective, from a cinematographer, and then ILM from the post. So we're able to come together as a team. And the thing is that the the success of it, I mean, I will tell you this, and this is not a secret because I've told many people, I was extraordinarily nervous going into that show. That That's like me 25 years ago as a DP being on my first big film set or my first big commercial going, I've got to look like I know what I'm doing because if this fucks up, it's going to all come back on me. So, mm-hmm. you know, there were, there were things out of my control for sure, but I knew in my heart of hearts that, that what we were doing it w- was right. And for the most part, you know, we had various levels of success with our, with our scenes, with our backgrounds. I think some we succeeded, we hit it out of the park, and I think some we kind of, you know, knocked it away so we could still run, but it wasn't, a, it wasn't an amazing <laughs> hit. So, yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting one. I mean, going back to the technology question, you know, and the, the idea of where you sit, like, as I said, anything that helps a director spend more time with their actor and less time driving to a location, um, moving a porta potty out of the way, uh, waiting for the sun to come up or go down or to, to change or the clouds to come in, like anything that removes any of the crap that goes along with filmmaking... I think can be really helpful. On the flip side of that, though, I'm also a purist. And where it's like, well, if you can put somebody in the real world and you can put them in the real desert in Jordan, 
why would you put them on a soundstage in Manhattan Beach? Like, mm. I asked that question because in the real world, yes, you're driving there and you're flying there and you're getting out of your car and you're spending time, but but there's something magical about but the mistakes, about the wind. Like, there was a scene in Mary Magdalene. I'm not sure if you've seen that, but there was a scene we did on the beach in Mary Magdalene, and the wind was blowing a gust. We could barely shoot because all the actors were getting sand in their eyes. And But on film, it is stunning. It is so dramatic. We never would have got that on stage or on a volume. So there are, there are two sides of the coin. As long as each side is properly explored, then I think there's there's arguments to be made for both. And, and I feel like we're jumping a little bit ahead, but it's totally cool to talk about the Mandalorian right up front. Usually we kind of go in here and talk about your, your background. But while we're talking about the Mandalorian, for people who haven't like looked into how you went about uh, creating the not, not just you, but the whole team created this kind of new new version of an old process, you know, that being rear screen projection. How involved were you in like the R&D of it all? Very like front line. I had to be. Really? I had to be. I had to be. I was shooting on it. So, like, it was absolutely, and that's what I was saying, like, it was, there was a few of us at the front line that had it failed, we would have been absolutely the first one shot. Do you know what I mean? Like, it, <laughs> it was it was absolutely imperative that, and still is, to, to, to be frank with you. And this, this, I mean, we could get, we could do an entire podcast just on, on the development of it and the... Uh, I mean, we should. <laughs> Well, maybe, maybe. I, I do think it's, listen, I think it's worth, because the thing is it's worth recording because I, I believe that that process by itself is similar to the early days of filmmaking in some ways where each time a new series is made, changes are made to the systems and updates and improvements. And, you know, if you look at the quality of filmmaking now versus in 1920, you would say that there's a lot been improved since mm. 1920 in terms of understanding of edits and lenses and movement and light. So you would say the same thing would go with with Mandalorian, but the te- but the development of it absolutely. I was I was front line because remember I did a lot of it on Rogue One and in 2015, and so that was the the beginning of all of us as a group continually talking about how possible it was to stage the, the stage of the future, you know, the LED stage of the future. And what does that look like? Is it square walls? Is it LEDs on the ceiling? And is it a curved wall? Like no one really had an idea until we yeah. went, all right, well, we've got this project. It's called Mandalorian. Here's how we can create a shootable stage with the resources that we have and the time that we have. Well, and for people who don't know uh, know it, and, and please correct me if I'm wrong, because obviously uh, I'm just I'm just a fan. You all were using rear screens like LED screens and the video game engine Unreal Engine, and so sets or exteriors or whatever would have been created in Unreal Engine, and then you were basically putting the actors in it, and you were able to make the backgrounds move with the proper parallax in a dolly shot or whatever. Am I correct in all that? Exactly, exactly. And the reason we could do that was because they were in. A gaming engine and the gaming engine is a 3d world so you know if i don't play 3d games but you can move anywhere in these spaces through doors and you know you can go upstairs and you can go downstairs and you can just basically it, the world knows where it should be and so you combine that technology with sensors in the stage that know where the camera is and then the camera tells the computer all right i'm 10 feet away from the floor and I'm three foot high. And so the computer then calculates and say, all right, well, the screen needs to look like this in order for your parallax to be correct. 
And how long of a process for developing it was kind of coming up with this? I, I, I mean, I, I don't think it can be said enough. It's a revolutionary system, and it's going to change the way a lot of stuff gets shot moving yes. forward if it hasn't already. Yes, 100%. Uh, how, how long did it take to develop this? Well, remember, there was different elements of different people developing different things. So... Um, I know that the guys at Epic were, were working on it for quite a while. I know the guys at ILM were working with the guys at Epic for quite a while. So like all of these systems were kind of approached early and said, all right, well, what do you think? If each of you contribute this this part of the of the pie, do you think we can get it all working together? And, you know, it all worked. That's the thing. It's like it, there was a high degree of difficulty and there was a high degree of failure. And it, it, failure would have been catastrophic because – that volume with the lights out, if you turn off the power to the volume, it is literally like standing in outer space. You, you, the sa- there's no sound, there's no air, it's a dead space. Like it's the most it's, it's the most vacuous space I've ever been in. You can't get lights in there, you can't rig lights in there because the ceiling's all LED. So if it failed, you basically have to come up with something else to do, go outside and do a different scene. So thankfully it didn't wow, fail so, so you were relying so much on the lights from the led screens to to light the scenes i'm, I'm assuming then i mean pretty much solely you could effectively say solely really yes, yes. and that's the power of it though because you're you're designing a scenario let's say you can go in okay let's let's look at Werner herzog's office right and again we could spend an entire multiple hours talking about specifics on the show but like Werner Herzog's office which is the client's office you go in there and it's like walking into a location like if you're in a location what would you want to put 18k outside that window okay well in the 3d render that window is a lot brighter so you then make that window brighter so that it projects light onto the set so mm. let's let's I mean 18k is a bad example because it's a direct light and it's sharp like you'd, you'd do soft light. So let's say that the sawtooth ceiling, you want it to be brighter. You want the ratio for that to be brighter. Well, then you increase the brightness of it, either in the 3D model that you make 10 weeks before the shoot or on the day of the shoot, you can put a, a window around the window and make that hotter and increase the light. So wow. it's not, again, I didn't use much lights because every time I did, it felt false. Uh, it felt like I was trying to light something. And also he was reflective. And so he'd reflect lights. So uh, maybe a different project with a p- person would work. What we did use, though, and that worked really well, was a was a really big digital Sputnik rig of about 50 digital Sputniks that created a soft sun. So there were times like in the, 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 the landing hangar in episode five, which Baz lensed, that he used this as a, as a backlight or a side light to, to imitate as if the sun was just peeking over the edge of the, over the landing hangar. So you could use lights, but you had to be very careful about when you use them. Definitely eye lights. You, for sure, eye lights are used on Verna, mm-hmm. but, but not much else. And I assume that it must be for the actors especially and the directors, frankly, must be outrageously freeing because uh, it's not a green screen. There's no stands. There's no cables. Yeah, but also like, you know, it's not like you're on a green screen stage where you're having to say like, hey, uh, imagine a dinosaur is coming after you. It's like they can look around and see where they're supposed to be. To me, that seems like a humongous advantage. 100%, yeah. And there's a lot of advantages in the fact that you deliver the footage to editorial that, that you've lensed as a director and DP. And it looks kind of the way you want it to look. You're not guessing. They're not having to comp in, a, you know, a mock-up of a background. That no, mm. it's it's very liberating when used correctly. And that is the the crux of the reason why I wanted to get involved because I wanted to make sure that when I did films with directors 
who I respect when I do drama films with directors that I really ha- I have high regard for that I can offer them this tool and if if I'm if I know what I'm talking about is if I've done it before then at least my skill level is such that I can offer that service so basically offering another plumbing service if you want to put it that way <laughs> <laughs> well I, I feel like again we could probably talk about Mandalorian all the way through but we've got you for about another half an hour at, at most so I want to I want to dive backwards and uh, talk about your your whole background because uh, you have a, a fascinating background and and uh, but but I always want to know when was the moment that you f- it first occurred to you that cinematography was a thing you could do um, I'll tell you exactly the moment because I've told this story a couple of times and I've actually told the DP this, but it, so I used to be a photographer, uh, and I started, I started, I joined a, a production company in Melbourne called exit films that was photography and film. And I saw people making commercials and I'm like, Oh, I could become a director. You know, I think well, this directing thing seems pretty good. So I sort of started veering towards direction thinking that's maybe what I wanted to do. And then at some point in the process when I realized I actually did not enjoy directing, I I watched cinematographers work and I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, I kind of know what they do, but I'm not really, I kind of know what they did, but like they're lit and they shot similar to what I did with photography, but I didn't really quite get it. So I watched a film called Ratcatcher that Alvin Kutcher shot and Lynn Ramsey directed. And effectively what that film is, as well as an amazing story with amazing characters, was stunning photography. And I say photography, not cinematography, because it, its underlying basis of that movie is photography. And I looked at every image and went, oh, my God, that's I can do that. Like, that's what I do. <laughs> I'm a photographer. That's what I do. I take photographs. And, like, I, I wasn't saying I could do it better than Alwyn because at that point I was like, fuck, this is amazing. But I went, that's what I do. That's what I do. That's what I enjoy doing. And because it, I, I, it always kind of confused me about people doing crane shots and dolly shots, and I was like, I don't really get. It, to me, it looked like a bit of a wank, you know, p- you know, the DP on their big crane, and their, <laughs> this was like, you know, it's, it's, you know, it just didn't feel right to me. That that, and often I felt it was flowery and effusive and not appropriate, and I didn't have the the language to understand why I didn't respond to it. But when mm. I saw Ratcatcher. What I saw was people who had made a really simple story, really simply, but incredibly powerfully. And I was like blown away. And I was like, you know what? I could become a DP mm-hmm. because I know how to do this. And that, and I, and I told Alwyn that, and I told Lynn that, and I, and I told them that I, so I owe a lot to them um, individually and, you know, as a group because. You know, I still may have got there somehow, some else, some other way. Like if I hadn't seen that film, but but I looked at that and went, the light bulb went off, and I was like, that is exactly what I do. And to this day, I'll say this is that I feel part of the the mantra that I take with cinematography is that the image needs to be simple and effective because you're looking at so many images in a movie. It's mm-hmm. like looking at a flip book. It's like flicking through your Instagram at high speed. You know, there's only so many images you can take in before your brain starts to go into a mind melt. And I feel that the rat catcher got the tone right. There were simple images. There were classic. There were times that there were images that were so heartbreakingly beautiful that you'd want to frame them. And there were other times that there were basic, simple shots that had nothing going for them. But the, the, the continuity, or sorry, the continuation of those shots next to each other made for something really powerful. 
we would be remiss not to talk about Lion. And I, I feel like Lion, it's its a beautiful movie. It's an epic movie. And, uh, you know, you've done uh, dramas before that. But Lion feels like it has a bigger scope or is more personal. I don't know. Like, uh, I was thinking about what, you, what you'd said earlier about kind of the character work that you, that you do in your work and like lion is a character story, but it's like with a, with a huge canvas. Can you talk about what brought you to that project and how you approach the material? It was a very, very, very beautiful story that, that my, my, one of my best buddies, Garth Davis had, had been reading. And I believe the producers had, had acquired the rights to it. There was a massive bidding war when it came out and the, the producers had acquired the rights to it. And, and Garth had done uh, Top of the Lake with uh, Jane Campion, with the same producers, and, and they brought it to him, and he, he obviously flipped over it and told me the story, and I went, wow. You know, I've, I've, I've had a great love of India. You know, I, I, my wife uh, spent a lot of time there when she was uh, younger, you know, after studying, and so she has a great affinity for it. So as I was sort of, you know, getting to know my wife, then girlfriend, I also spent a lot of time in India with her trying to impress her about how worldly I could be and I grew to love the place. <laughs> and there's something incredible about India, about the humanity in India and it's very hard to define as Westerners that have, we have our own set of rules about things. You know, stepping in, into the street in India is, you know, it's full of the best things and the worst things about humanity. and. I always thought and felt like I would love to try and capture this on film. And it's the, it's the, it's the you know, I did a lot of photographs when I was in, in India and I felt like I was, you know, trying to record it. I was just trying to capture what India was to me. And so when Garth got this project, I just leaped at it, of course, because it had everything mm -hmm. that I wanted to do. It had, you know, wonderful characters. I was getting to work with one of my best mates, an amazing story that, that you know, if you didn't know it to be true, you'd think it was a, uh, you know, made up. And you, Garth and I had developed together. Uh, we'd grown up together. In fact, you know, not grown up from a young age, but but as filmmakers, we'd grown up together. You know, Garth mm. was doing commercials and music videos, and you know, he was working with some really great DPs in Australia. And you know, I started working with him uh, on some of the little projects as I was training. And so, you know, he did some stuff. We did some stuff together. I did some stuff by myself. Then we came together. Like we sort of grew apart, but together, you know, and it was wonderful because I got to learn from him every time he'd worked with a great DP, like Mandy Walker, for example, one of my, one of my heroes in Australia, or Anna Howard, one of we my heroes just, in Australia. We just interviewed her. We, we, uh, we haven't released her episode yet, but uh, because she uh, shot the live action Mulan mm. and we're holding it for when, for when Mulan gets released. But yeah, she's amazing. Amazing. So she was one of my heroes in, in Australia. And, you know, Garth would work with her, work with Anna Howard, work with Danny Ruhlman, some of the great Graham Wood, some of the great DPs in Australia. And then, you know, between those big commercials, he and I would do things, smaller commercials or smaller PSAs or smaller music videos. And, you know, it was great because I learned from him after what he'd learned from them. And then I taught him what I knew from other directors, like not taught that's that's not right you know i guess i bought to the table i guess is what i learned elsewhere with other directors and and it was it was quite a beautiful relationship and and lion for me was the was the sort of the, the epitome of that where it was a great story we got to go back to our home city to shoot it in melbourne as well as india uh we got to shoot the story of a, a plucky little kid who was a survivor you know he is 
absolutely the kind of the, the type of person you want on your side. Yeah, he is a survivor. He'll always survive. He'll always succeed. He'll always do well because that's his um, that's his mantra. Mm-hmm. And when you're working in India, this is something that I'm always interested in. When Westerners are going to a, a place like India where we don't see it in our movies on a regular basis. I mean, we see movies over here like Slumdog Millionaire, obviously. How do you go about making sure that you're not exoticizing the people in those countries when, when you're filming them? How do you how do you bring us in with your Western eye, even if you've been there and you're very familiar with it? How do you how do you balance that? So, so there's always the danger as Westerners going into countries that have very different cultures. And mm-hmm. and I've I've heard that expression a number of times that people have asked me. It's called poverty porn. And it's 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 something it's a very kind of a serious thing where like people rich people want to see what the poor people are like, but they don't want to actually go there. They want to see it on screen. And that is and was a, a very real concern on that movie for me and for Garth, but also on even on other projects where we were to go to, to other countries. So the main thing is that I think we were trying to be very, very respectful and and not showing things that that were not true uh, or, or that we were trying to create situations that didn't exist. Now, obviously it's a film and film, we create situations. That's what we do. But I think we were trying very hard not to, not to put the boy in clothes that were more bedraggled than he, than he would have been in, you know? So that's the thing. We tried to make sure it was honest. Like Garth Davis as a filmmaker is such an honest filmmaker. He tries to get to the heart and soul of the characters, which I think, again, to pay respect to those characters who are real people, to pay the the absolute utmost respect to those people and not to over-sensationalise it or not Mm. to sort of make them poorer than they were or richer than they were for any other reason, just just to be honest with the situation. And, you know, hopefully we did well there. Like I tried, we tried to make sure the camera followed him and his story. So very much made sure the camera was at his eye level where possible, you know? And and that, I don't know if you've ever stood in a, an Indian railway station at the height of a child, and I did, and I it's just amazing. It's like when people coming at you, it's like a sea of people. And if you're a normal heighted person, sorry, an adult heighted person, it, it's not as it's not as scary. But imagine being three foot, three foot two. Like, yeah. you know, I did that. I, I, I stood on my knees, I sat on my knees, I should say, and and just absorbed what would happen when you have people that that uh, surround you. And it's like being surrounded by by the waves, by water. It's like drowning. And so a big part of our philosophy there, which goes back to your original question, was just about being honest. And that's the way we achieved that. And uh, how does that honesty kind of permutate into your approach to lighting a place like that too? Where, you know, it's easy to kind of say, well, you know, the sunlight hits everywhere, blah, blah, blah. But the light, the quality of light is different in a, in a, in a different country, in a different part of the world. Uh, Did you come up with like a a strategy or uh, what, what, what were your thoughts about lighting uh, that film? Well, as with everything that I've done, generally, the more natural the light or the more natural the feel of the light, the more successful I feel it is to me. Mm-hmm. Now, that that's not to say to anyone listening, a director, producer, that I can't do sensational 
uh, lighting from a from a stage or I think you've proved you know, it. like a like you, you've, a, like you've a, proved a, that already. Uh, well, no, no, no. What would I say? I said sensational, sensational in the truest sense of the word, like something that's beyond natural and beyond normal. Yeah. So, like you know, I'm looking one day to do a musical or some kind of staged type of film. I'd love to have that opportunity, but so far I've never really been able to do that. But I studied light in India a lot. As you know, I've I've spent a lot of time in India photographing India. You know, one of the earliest experiences that I had in India were, was taking photographs. My my girlfriend and I, my wife, now my wife, we traveled all through India and up into Pakistan, up into the mountains of Pakistan and and just photographed and photographed and photographed. It was a it was an amazing experience. So I tried to really learn and really train my eye to to see what the country was beyond just the postcards, mm-hmm. you know? And the, the country is full of postcards, but once you get underneath the layer of those postcards, you start to see the humanity for what it's for what it's the most truthful. So I, I studied the light a lot through photography prior to the movie. So going in, it felt like just the natural next step, and it was great to have that opportunity to go into India to tell such a great Indian story, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean that boy sums up the entire country, you know, like it's plucky the entire country is so plucky and 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 its will to survive its will to um prosper is is beyond anything else i've seen in the world so i feel like that that he kind of summed up that entire place so it was wonderful being able to do that with such a great story but then also better relate it to my home country as well and then seeing the 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 relationship between those two cultures where you had a young Indian kid who was able to survive against all odds and then grow up to be effectively what an Australian. Like he grew up an Australian, he spoke like me, he effectively was all Australian except for the fact that he was born in, in India. And so I could put myself in that position because I could imagine myself as an Australian being told, well, actually, you had another life in another country as foreign as India. Because think about that, Saru going back to India as an adult, India is as foreign a country to him as it is to us. Yeah. So that to me was the was the the very interesting human aspect of him as an adult, going back to a country that was home, that he tried to find his way home since he was a kid, but suddenly was no longer his home. Like seeing Australia through another character's eyes, like like being that it's it's where you're from. The young Saru, it was very interesting because it's it, it, in the movie we tried very hard to to. I mean, Australia Australia can be a pretty bland place. Like the suburbs of Australia, visually, can be pretty bland um, and pretty. I mean, not not that where he was living was bland, but but it's kind of homogenized, you know, mm-hmm. compared to where he came from. So seeing that, trying to express that, you know, for somebody that was new to the country but not to make it boring yeah because again it's like it's it's trying to particularly from a color perspective and a brightness perspective like when you go to australia one of the first things you notice when you get off the plane is how bright it is and we wanted to make it bright not garish there's a very there's a slight difference of course but we wanted to make it bright and exciting and but still quite white bread does that make sense like yeah Australia, Australia for the most part is very white bread, you know, and to see this kind of Indian character, he he literally months before was sleeping rough in a slum or an orphanage, seeing that through his eyes 
was a very interesting challenge for us. And it was great. I mean, I, ultimately, I, I feel quite proud of the way we, we showed Australia. You know, I, I, it's it, Australia, when you grow up in it, it, it's normal. But trying to see it through a character's eyes that makes it not normal, that was the exciting part. Uh, I got a question. Um, if I recall correctly, I mean... Sonny, who plays uh, Saru, is is he's very small. I mean, he's 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 very small, and a lot of the time in that movie, I feel you are right down at eye level with him. Like you're really having the perspective, either through his through his eyes, but more or less just you know putting the camera at his height, exactly like like you were talking about kneeling in the train station. Uh, I, I assume this is this was this is really conscious. You really wanted to to make him feel as uh, small in this giant place as possible. And I think it was really successful. But were there any other tricks that, that you can think of besides maybe a few really wide lenses and just seeing the mass of humanity? What, how, other, how else did you try to isolate him from uh, the rest of, the, the, rest of the, the world and around him? Well, the, the height thing's number one, and you, that, that's true. But, but for the most part, we didn't want to make him feel small. That wasn't the purpose. Like to be at his height actually allowed us to normalize him as a, a, a normal height. So yes, there were times where we were at his height and we had to see of people around him, which kind of then reminded us how how big the rest of the world is around him. There are other times we put him on the bridge, we, we went back a long way, we made him a tiny little figure on a massive bridge. So we absolutely tried to keep reminding the audience how small this little human was and we did so by by being a little bit extreme with our situations. Like that bridge is the perfect scenario. Um, it was a physical barrier to him as well, like because he was living at that train station for a long time, and that bridge was a physical barrier for him to move on to the next phase of his existence. And not only that, he stopped and looked at that bridge, and it was a it was a magnificent thing for him to experience. So as an audience, it kind of led us. To, in a couple of different paths. So being at his height for most of the movie then allowed us to remind the audience later how small he actually was and, and is. But we definitely didn't want him to be powerless. Like he's a lion. He's our lion. You know, he he is the, the centerpiece from which this entire film and this entire story runs. So he needed to be as powerful at the age of six as he was at the age of 30. You know, he had to have... We had to have that same power so height camera height absolutely was was definitive you know it, it was a big challenge for us because it wasn't a big budget movie and he was at that height that i would argue is a really hard height to film because steady cam upside down in low mode is too low mm-hmm. and in high mode is too high and yes scientifically you could probably figure out that there is a overlap in there in the middle as I've had many debates with Steadicam operators about. But generally, it's not where the Steadicam likes to sit. It doesn't like to sit at his eye height. So invariably what happens is throughout a scene, you end up dropping down if you're in low mode or going up if you're in high mode. So it was very important to us that we maintained that height. And it's an unnatural height. And, you know, we we didn't have access to things like the Trinity rig, which is that new, you know, that new ARRI product. So... Uh, we used the Movi, and the Movi was the perfect solve for us. So I could operate on the wheels, and and Brett, our our Movi operator, could 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 move around with him. 
Yeah, that's. I remember the first time I ever saw a movie, and I was like, at once, kind of blown away, and then at the same time, being like, "How is someone going to hold this in front of themselves? It's so front heavy for you know a full day, um, yeah. you know." And that's got to be its own its own challenge. But I guess they've they've come up with easy rig type solutions or something for that. Yeah, well, so what's interesting is kind of looking at your at your body of work as we're doing, kind of seeing that there is that there is kind of a realism in in so much of the stuff that you've done, even things like Snow White and the Huntsman, which is a fantasy film, like it 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 felt grounded and and real in the, in the way that you photographed it, and I want to use this to move us to Rogue One, which you know, I can't imagine the pressure of making kind of the first non-canon Star Wars movie, um, you know, that not non-canon, but not not linear yep. Skywalker saga uh, Star uh-huh. Wars movie. And, uh, you know, w- what an amazing job you did. And I understand that that movie involved a great deal of reshoots. And I don't know how much you want to talk about that, but I'd be interested to yeah. hear how the story was kind of massaged in in reshoots because i mean that happens to a lot of movies especially big movies that have to fit into a giant series like a marvel movie or something i i could tell you when i first heard that disney had bought lucasfilm and that they were going to make some star wars films i was i was very buoyed by the fact that they had kathy kennedy at the head i mean that that to me i just went oh fantastic choice of a producer to do that i do remember thinking being such a big star wars fan I don't think I can do a Star Wars film. I didn't think it was like in my wheelhouse because I I didn't really want to. What I felt was maybe what I would do is destroy my <laughs> my own memories of of you know the, the the best way to as you know the best way to destroy your enjoyment of any type of food is to have too much of it. Yeah. Or is you know is to stuff your face with it. So I'm like oh, I, have a, I have a deep fascination with Star Wars. The last thing I should do is spend a year in the reeds of a Star Wars universe. Mm. You know, because making a movie sometimes can be a little boring. I mean, I'll be be frank with you, and it's it, it's <laughs> it sounds it sounds really disrespectful to the process. But some days it's like grind to grind, and some days it's the same as yesterday. It's the same as yesterday. You just might be on a different set, just different words. Like if you if you break it down, if you're having a not a great day. Sometimes making films can be a little bit of a grind, mm-hmm. and don't get me wrong, I'm never, I'm, I love it to bits. I'm just being a little bit honest about that. So, the idea that maybe going through a bit of a grind with Star Wars, I was like, I'm not really that keen on doing that. <laughs> so, so I, I get, I got the call, um, and you know, Gareth had made a great film that I love called Monsters. Me too. And he did that by by himself, for the most part. That, with a that movie changed my life. I saw that movie, and I'm like. God damn it. Now I have to learn after effects, but you know, <laughs> like G- Gareth Edwards, like it, 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 what he did was so inspirational with that film. And it, you know, it was cool to see him move into the Godzilla movie and then, you know, get a star Wars movie. I, I it, sometimes when you see people, you know, relatively early in their career, getting a giant budget movie, you kind of scratch your head. But in his case, he seemed like the perfect candidate for something like that. Um, fully, fully. And I, and I, and I loved the spirit of monsters. Uh, I mean, the film I enjoyed, but I loved the spirit. I loved the fact that that he went out and went. You know what? I'm just going to make this movie. Yeah. And I'm I'm going to shoot it myself. I'm going to cut it. I'm going to do the special effects, the visual effects. Like he, he pretty much did everything. And I loved that spirit. So he he asked for a meeting for his new film, and and I went. Well, I can't say no to that because first of all, I need to pay him kudos anyway, and. Like let's go to San Fran. Let's go and 
you know, see where, let's go and see Willy Wonka's Chocolate Factory. And then, <laughs> and then, and, and thank everyone for the time and wave goodbye and say that I've seen the factory, you know, like and leave. But I remember about 10 minutes into him showing me some of the concept work and talking to about the story, I, I was like, I can't not do this movie. And I do recall, actually, there was a bit of a conflict possibly with Lion. That was my biggest thing because there was going to be possibly a clash between the two films. And I remember thinking, if I, if I can't do this movie, I'm going to be heartbroken, both of them. Like, so it was funny. It only took me 10 minutes to the point where I totally changed my opinion from uh, I, I can't do a Star Wars film to I cannot not do this movie. So it was funny how that kind of worked. But, you know, going back to the whole grind of filmmaking, like Star Wars is a funny thing because I recall the first time we saw a, um, an X-Wing, a full-size X-Wing. We walked into the Cardington sound stages. They just built the, the, the Yavin set. And I saw a full-size X-Wing for the first time, and it was like being six again where yeah. I just was so giddy and so excited and so utterly overjoyed to be standing looking at a full-size X-Wing. And it didn't take long, maybe two or three days before when we were filming to actually get really sick of these X-Wings because they're big, they're bulky, they get in the way, they're hard to, they're hard to move and they block light. So they're a pain in the ass. So they're, they're impossible to move. They look fantastic, but they are a pain in the butt. And so I, rec- I recall it took three or four days to the point where I'm like, I wanted to film this way. I'm like, oh man, there's a fucking X-Wing in the way. All right. All right. So listen, if we, if we pan left a bit, then while we're doing that, can we just shunt the X-Wing out of the way? And I guess they weren't on then, wheels. You couldn't just, the, the, you the, just shove them. <laughs> there are, yeah, they're on wheels, they're on wheels, but they're big. And they're, if you look at the engineering mm. of an X-Wing, the, the little thin little, um, uh, thing holding up the wheel. Trust me, if you look at it closely, it, it's it, it's not designed by an engineer. It's it's not. So wait, so they don't fly? Look, <laughs> no, uh-huh. not, not yet, not yet. But but, but I've seen them fly. Story, I know. But the flip side of that story is okay. So I got really annoyed with the X wings. But I'm walking down Hollywood Boulevard the week of the the Rogue One premiere because I just come out of the AAC or something. And there's a there's a there's big hoarding up. There, there there's something going on behind the hoarding. I'm like, what's that? And I see one of the guys from London who was one of the builders of the X wing. And I see him walking around. I'm like, oh, dude, like, what are you doing here? And he's like, oh, we're we're rebuilding the X wing for the premiere. He goes, come in. And I, I went inside and I saw my X-Wing again. It was like, again, being six. I was like, ah, oh, that's the X-Wing. That's my X-Wing. That's so cool. I, mean, it's, I, I, I just it's imagine now you brushing your teeth in the mirror and looking over your shoulder and outside is like an X-Wing. It's like everywhere you go, there's now an X-Wing following you. So. Yeah. But it's just amazing how, and I can, I understand now, like my kids were a bit young when I made Rogue One to fully understand what Star Wars was, but they now are so passionate about Star Wars and passionate about Mandalorian, like them and the Lego, and they're so annoying because they keep asking me about all these characters that I don't know about in Clone Wars and in in episodes one, two, and three, which I don't know. Like, so so they're so passionate. They're like the younger me, which means that's why I didn't want to do another Star Wars film because I didn't want to destroy that passion yeah. that I that I had for Star Wars. But but I haven't, and it was it was quite a amazing experience working on a Star Wars film. And yes, to go back to your very early question about being nerve wracking, 
Absolutely. It was beyond nerve-wracking because this was my childhood and my my friend's childhood, and we wanted to make a good, honest Star Wars movie. So uh, are you able to talk at all about the extensive reshoots that, you know, it's been well publicized that they did on that? Or is that something you were? Yeah. How, I mean, how, listen, how the, involved were you in the reshoots? I mean, I, 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 I was there every day. Mm-hmm. I was there every, you know, thankfully I hadn't taken another movie and I was able to be very involved in the reshoots. Mm-hmm. You know, the funny thing was, and this is this is what I kind of laughed at. That, that, this is a huge, obviously, it's, this is huge IP for Disney and it's a huge pressure for Disney. Yeah. Um, and for Lucasfilm, because they felt the pressure as much as I just mentioned, I'm sure. Like, you can't tell me that the people who were running, the Kathy Kennedy and her, her her great team there, weren't sitting in their offices going, if we screw this up, we're going to be the people that screwed up Star Wars. Yeah. Like, that's a big pressure. And that's more than me as a DP. Like, I mean, hell, what, I can underexpose a couple of scenes and like, how am I going to screw up Star Wars <laughs> as a DP, right? So for me, that pressure was massive. But in the reality, that pressure for me is tiny compared to their pressure. So the pressure was to get it right. And, you know, the the, the reports of extensive reshoots and, and this, that and the other, it was, I mean, partially true. No, no, it was true. We 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 shot, and we sh- uh, did some additional photography, but that's that's normal in big budget filmmaking. Yeah. And and the thing is that that what I always go back to is the the process of animation. No one in any way, shape, or form starts talking about animated movies that have scenes that are redrawn or redone or revoiced or, but that happens over and over and over and over again. You, yeah. you might have somebody come in and revoice a film seven times or change the scenes out. They do test screenings and they change that scene. They move that. They they refine and refine and refine and refine. The thing is that with animation, you can do that uh, quietly because, you know, it's it doesn't involve studios and hordes of people. And But unfortunately, on a live-action film, to refine takes time and money and people. So reports leak out that, of, of all the, the dire stuff that was going on, nothing was abnormal. Nothing was abnormal. Like the, 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 the producers and everybody realized that they could, they could make changes and improvements. So why wouldn't they do that? Yeah. They had time and they had the resources. So why wouldn't you? Like if you're a smart producer, you've got time and resources and you know that you can make improvements to a film to make it better, why would you not do that? And that's – everyone that's, that asked me about that at the time, I'm like – there's, there's, it's like a there's nothing to see here there's no news story it's just filmmakers making a film better yeah yeah so and using the resources that they had to do so you know we had to we had to outsource get an additional second unit director to do some stuff that wasn't able to be done on the main unit you know Gareth was cutting he had Tony come in and help rewrite some stuff and Tony Gilroy work on some right? stuff like it Tony Gilroy yeah. yeah so it was it was a completely uh, I don't know there's a there's that there's that silly term that our, our, that I've heard, the, the nothing burger. You know what I mean? I've heard that a few <laughs> times. It, f- it felt felt very much like a nothing burger. But but I get it. People want to talk about Star Wars. You know? Yeah, well, I mean, people. you know, I, I, whatever happened, uh, you know, I, I feel like it resulted in one of the most purely Star Wars feeling Star Wars movies since the original trilogy. Yep. You know, it, it, it nailed that look and it nailed that feel. 
So uh, I, I feel like I'm about ready to wrap up. I feel remiss because I would love to talk about Foxcatcher. I'd love to talk about Snow, more about Snow White and the Huntsman and uh, Mary Magdalene and Vice. But, um, you know, maybe we can save that for uh, part two, you know, when, when you have next time. Yeah, because I, I, I just, you know, we don't want to release a three hour long episode either. And I feel uh, like, uh, you no, know, we've got. Yeah, well, and we could we could absolutely bring in some of that stuff when we talk about uh, Dune and Batman and in the future. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, Dune Dune's going to be you know out sort of end of the year, so and I'll be done with Batman sort of early next year. So let let's let's talk again because by then I'll be able to talk about Dune, and um, there'll be some other stuff to talk about. And yeah, I think it's be great. Well, if you're willing yeah. to come back, I, I think we'd love to uh, have you to to discuss uh, those movies that we can't discuss now. Those being Dune and Batman, <laughs> especially. Um, yeah. Before we go, though, is there uh, any place uh, where people can find you or your work online, social media, your website, anything that that people can uh, find you? Well, I, I do have uh, I do have Instagram. Uh, I, I don't generally. I'm not very good at Instagram. I'm not very good at social media, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I try and post things that as they come up. Uh, but no, I mean, my website, unfortunately, is in disarray right now. In fact, it's not working. Oh. And and I, I made it one of my mantras over the last few months of isolation to at least put together some t- a website, but it hasn't happened. So... Um, unfortunately not I'm afraid I, I, go and go and get the movies go and buy the movies absolutely uh, after yeah. doing this podcast now for, for seven years I've, I've often thought that I should start a side business of just creating websites for DPs because uh, yeah. it, it is almost always the, the refrain that we hear is oh, I've got a reel up somewhere from yeah. six and a half years ago and I did have a website but it's it's not there yeah. without, you, without you, fail yeah. they usually will say yeah you can go to my website but it's really out of date because you know <laughs> you're too busy working I, I kind of feel like yeah I can have a service it's just like we just keep every DP's uh, you know website updated we're always adding a new stuff it's like that, that would be the yeah. business I'd, I'd get a couple oh, I get a couple of other people to do it and they just you know all the data entry but anyway <laughs> some of the can, yeah. can you get well, can you get the web uh, suffix dot DP because that you know ooh, that's a good one. I should check. Yeah, yeah. I'm just full <laughs> of business ideas. Anyway, um, well, the um, I, I did a I did a little um podcast a while back with um with Lawrence who runs Larry who runs Shot Deck. Oh yeah. And so there's there's quite a number of my films grabbed on that. So I was like, I think I've just found all the material for my website. Thank you, Larry. <laughs> I'm yeah, a big fan of Shot yeah. Deck. Shot Deck is awesome. That's a great idea, isn't it? It, it yeah. is. It, it's really wonderful how it works too. Uh, I'm I'm quite fond yeah. of it. So, uh, and more more plugs for Larry. Larry's been on the show, and 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 we love to support and promote Shot Deck. I think that uh, the yeah. more people who know it exists, the more people will use it. Yes, indeed. And and, and I I think there's a communal aspect to that as well, where people can can also grab stuff. I don't, I don't know how Larry's managing it, but but even like commercials and music videos. You know what I mean? Like uh, other reference images from other areas paintings like you could just grow that expansion of reference so i think that's yeah. fully the intention of it too yeah i do too yeah yeah well uh, that's good well thank you uh very much uh greg for for coming on and uh yeah i mean can't, can't wait to see your next stuff love your work it's uh it's been exciting to talk to you pleasure thanks boys All right, that was Greg Frazier. Greg, uh, I'm going to hold you to your word that you will come back and talk to us after the Batman and Dune come out. I can't wait to see both of those movies. Oh, my God. 
uh, yeah, looking forward to both as, as well. Hey, uh, we got to talk about Instagram, actually. You know, we don't usually talk about our social media at all in the podcast, but we're... I mean, why, sh- why should uh, the Cinematography Podcast exploit a, vis- a purely visual uh, social network? Yeah, it, it makes no sense. It, well, especially when we could could just have like a an, an audio presence, but we do have a That's visual true. presence. So actually, our producer, Alana Cody, puts together these really nice teases for each one of our episodes. Yeah, those are awesome where she uh, she makes these uh, little promos and it's usually uh, stills of the cinematographer who we interviewed with a uh, section uh, of uh, the interview, usually just them talking. Great stuff. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we're very, very close to getting a thousand followers. I know you might be thinking like a thousand followers. How did they get so many followers? But but really uh, so many followers. We're we're super close to a thousand. So if you use Instagram, please follow us. It, it would be fun. We'd, we'd love to hit a thousand. Be really cool. And, uh, what is the, what is the handle? What is our Instagram handle? It's at the Cinepod. T H E C I N E P O D at the Cinepod. Do it. Yeah. Do it now. Do yeah. it. You're holding your phone. You're listening to us on your phone. Probably just probably. go ahead and you, uh, you could follow us. Just, you, you, just follow us on it. It doesn't cost you anything. Who cares? You know, just, it's just, it helps. And you know what? You get a little, uh, reminder when a new episode comes out, which is kind of cool. We have some good, we have reminder, some really good yeah. ones. And uh, while we're here uh, asking uh, our listeners to uh, help us out, uh, like and subscribe. Like and subscribe. Yeah, 100%. We don't say that enough. So, Ilya, you know what time it is now? Ooh, I think it's bill paying time. I like paying bills. I really don't like paying bills at all, actually. It's the (laughs) hardest thing I ever do. Uh, well, we're going to pay them right now. Uh, our fine friends at Aperture, you makers of professional LED lights, uh, have a light that doesn't get enough attention, and it's called the LSC120D2. Yeah, it just rolls off the tongue. But a 120D2 is a professional Bowens mount LED light that ha- takes up about 120 watts of power. That's about that's how you know what's going on when they call it the 120, and it's the second version of it. And it's a $745 light. It's available at Hot Rod Cameras. It comes in a couple of different kits. So you can buy one or two or three. And it comes with a nice case and all the stuff you kind of expect from a light like this. Although it does also allow you to power it via V-mount battery, a gold-mount battery. So you can kind of take it anywhere. It's become extremely popular with people on uh, YouTube and social media who are looking for a very bright, very powerful, very easy-to-use light that uh, you can adapt all kinds of modifiers on there. And I am seeing it in more and more stuff. In fact, the Aperture users group on Facebook, I see more and more people uh, you know, putting up screenshots of uh, people who are who are creating these home studios right now. And I think Alton Brown was on there the other day with like, oh, there was a screenshot. You could see the, the Aperture 120D2 in the background. And it's uh, it's a good popular light. And it $750 might sound like a lot for that person who's been looking at $100 lights on, on Amazon. But truly, for a professional grade light like this and what it does and how long it'll last you and how bright it is, it, it's a total bargain. Yes, I agree. I, I do think that, uh, you know, our current ecosystem, you know, probably going back a little bit more than 10 years, uh, kind of told everybody like, hey, gear should be super cheap. But honestly, when you when you buy when you buy a really solid piece of gear, you know, you're going to have that thing for, you know, you're not just going to have it for a couple of years. You're going to have it for a long, long time. You're going to get a lot of hours out of it. Yeah. Uh, maybe like 50,000 hours, something like that. <laughs> a, yeah, lot I mean, of, like, a lot of hours. Like when actually you had suggested to me years ago to buy a Cartoni tripod and uh, I think I bought it in 2007. I am still using that tripod oh, yeah. today. 
13 years later and it'll probably last you another 13 years and then maybe you can service it but yeah it's a uh, maybe it's, i don't know i mean I, I i think it's awesome it's the best tripod i ever had it's the most expensive tripod i ever bought and uh, i have never once regretted it because uh it's gonna last it's gonna last so long but that's you know when when you when you invest a little bit in this gear you you know you do it for a reason you know and yeah you can get super dirt cheap lights or whatever on amazon dirt cheap everything everything is available in a dirt cheap version now and almost yeah. none of it i can say is very good so it's going to get smashed up easily it's going to break it's going to fail on you when you when you need it most that's why you get the professional stuff so that when you're working with uh with a client or when you're when you're on a shoot where it's not easy to just you can't just go in your front yard and shoot something you you had you had to go to a location you had to hire actors you had to do all this stuff get get stuff that you can depend on a hundred percent and and also typically the light output of something from like uh that 120 d2 it's going to be a lot more than most of those cheaper lights that that's kind of the thing that they don't really talk about they use all kinds of terms that are um obfuscating exactly how bright it is they'll say oh it's a billion luxmans or something like that some term they made up yes it's not a lux it's not a lumen it's Mm -hmm. a it's a it's going to be they're going to say some incredible thing or you're going to have to understand the other metrics toe candles they're big on toe candles it it could be you would not believe the sort of unscrupulous stuff that is out there where i'll say like a million foot candles at one centimeter and it's like yeah one centimeter everything is incredibly bright so it's uh yeah you have to really understand what those terms mean and typically the better companies the professional companies they they give you uh they give you industry standard terms and industry industry standard distances so you understand really what what you're getting into and now short ends excellent so now it is time for our short end section yes our famous short end section our world famous our world famous hamburgers and short ends we are listened to in 127 countries it is world famous can I can I just say our short ends are uh, more uh, more alive and vital than any actual short ends company is anymore? Yes, that's that's a hundred percent true. Sorry, Doctor Rostock. Anyway, Ilya, what is your short end? Uh, my my short end is uh, the Black Magic Company has announced a twelve k cinema camera for under can i just 10- say this was going to be my short end too and then you, you like you, you'd kind of already claimed it you licked it so that i can because I, I i think this is fascinating we, so we, go on we, we can both make it our short end if you want if you we can we can we can both do it but okay it's a 12k camera it costs under ten thousand dollars and 12k you're going like why would i ever use 12k and uh here's the reality it's, it's like you had a transcript of what i said when i read that news item <laughs> what the fuck does anyone need 12k for just you wait everyone is going to have a 12k camera at some point this is the future this is what people are doing this is the manufacturers are, we are racing 12, 12k screens no are we gonna have... we're not we're not gonna have 12k screens we are is not this, is this just so that i can take a, a like a super wide shot and turn it into an extreme close-up to a certain extent yes that's something that that people want to do but uh is the it manu- just so that I, I have to buy five times more hard drive space for the same amount of footage? Part I of that a, is true. I did yeah. a shoot, I did a shoot I, which I've talked about on here, uh, that was an 8K shoot about a year ago. <laughs> and it was fine, but I had to like go through a proxy workflow to make it work. And, sure. uh, and it was green screen, so it made sense to go as high res as we could go. But come on, 12K, really? Yeah, the manufacturers are going to have less to compete on uh, in the future because cameras are all getting better and better and better. And uh, one of the things you'll see is that producers and other people out there, 
it's all about the K's. That K number means something. So they know that one is more than none and four is more than three and eight is more than four and 12. Boy, that sounds great. So, uh, so yeah, they're really going to be playing to the numbers. It's going to be, it's like, it's like a science fiction world of tomorrow where you'd have to deliver for 8k distribution. Like that's, we're still not there. We're not even close to there. There's a little bit, but it's not, it's not even really worth talking about. It's not, it's not real the way that 4k distribution is right now it's it's not like 4k's okay look 4k is awesome i'm very happy with 4k i think 4k is great i understand needing 6k or even 8k if you if you needed to push in or you needed to reframe 6k is great gives you a little bit of wiggle room if you needed to make some tweakage or whatever and gives you a little bit more resolution but my question too is um you know I, I always think about like when everyone was going bonkers for 4K and the red camera was a big deal, blah, blah, blah. There was Airy, s- solid, uh, you know, industry standard Airy with the Alexa that at that time I believe maxed out at 2.8K. Yes. And their whole argument was it doesn't matter the pixels because it's about the quality of those pixels. And I remember also around that year, uh, Skyfall. Yeah, and Skyfall. Sky. It didn't win best cinematography, but it was nominated for best cinematography. Correct. Yeah, and it was shot on that Alexa it by was. Roger by Roger Deakins. Yeah, um, and I kind of have to ask myself, okay, you know, like, is when I go to the movie theater and I'm watching, which is, uh, in case you haven't heard of these movie theaters in olden days, that people <laughs> would idiotically get in a giant room together where they could just freely spread diseases, and uh, and it and was dark. Would, and, and they, they sat close dark, together <laughs> and they would eat food with their mouths and noses uncovered and watch watch images on a giant screen. Um, but seriously, and, and going to a movie theater, am, am I the just truth of the matter like is, a, is, is how far am, away you sat from the screen could even determine. Am I going to sound like a crabby old man when I say if I sat in the front row, would I notice that big of a difference between a 12K image and an 8K image? No. Are my eyes able to resolve the difference? No. And and you've been hanging out with me too long because this is what I always tell people. The limiting factor is your eyes. The limiting factor yeah. for a lot of this is your eyes and your seating distance. Uh, already, you can't really tell the difference between 4K and 8K. Uh, you can tell the difference between HD and 4K. That is something you can definitely see a difference. Once you go to a 4K, 8K, really the big difference is how close you can get to that screen. And uh, for some people who want to sit in the very front row, yeah, that's going to be um, that's going to be a better experience. But if you are anywhere outside of like that first eight, 10 feet, But but I'm going to state the obvious that sitting in the very front row, like I remember when uh, when the Tarantino movie Django Unchained came out, um, Alicia and I got to go see it at the Vista Theater, one of my favorite theaters in L.A. But the only seat we could get was like front row, far, far house left. Yeah. And so, you know, we're watching a weird, you know, trapezoid uh, version of this movie and it's just not the most pleasant way to see it. So, you know, like I, I, I just don't know what what level of pixel peeping we've gotten to when we need uh, 12, 12 K resolution. You, you know, if you don't have the best pixels, if you have more pixels, in some ways you can compensate a little bit for, for not having, having the best. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like saying like you can have the most amazing, amazing, you know, four cylinder engine, but if you've got a 12 cylinder engine, even that most amazing four cylinder engine is going to, going to be hard pressed. Cause that sort of maybe a mediocre 12 cylinder engine yeah. has got so much more going for it. So, so really the quality of the pixels do matter. Your eyes matter. Your seating distance matters. All of this matters. But what also 
is really important is your workflow. What's really important is how much money you have to spend. Well, which really 12K is going to choke every editing system out. Like, I- unless they have some crazy, super efficient algorithm that is like nothing we've ever encountered before, even then, 12K, I just can't imagine 12K is going to be easy to work with from an editing standpoint. Black and magics. you can always go to a proxy workflow, but then what are you delivering in? Are you going to deliver a final product in 12K? And then where do you see that? Blackmagic is going to, uh, they've already made some claims that using uh, DaVinci Resolve, using a good laptop, supposedly you can you can handle this. This is what they say. I've not actually seen it or tried it myself. I, you know, for everyone at home right now who can't see Ben's face, Ben is making sort of like a incredulous, like, you know, I, yeah. yeah, I'll believe it when I see it kind of thing. So this is a lot like to me, this, this reminds me of early days of red when they were like making weird, wild swings at, you know, we're going to do this. We're going to do that. And eventually they got around to doing several things, not unlike the things they'd promised, Although I remember the Scarlet was going to be a 3K camera for three thousand dollars. All right, well, let, let me let me stop you right here. Though we'll put a link in uh, in the in the show notes for this. So definitely go to the show notes at camnoir.com to to uh, see all the links to all the things we talk about. But we're going to put a link to John Brawley, who was just a guest on the show. His mm-hmm. uh, his great footage he shot on that new 12K camera, and I got to say it's on Vimeo, and it looks freaking great. It looks incredible, and so ultimately. That's kind of what matters. What really matters but is it what looks the, great because John Brawley shot it. Let's it looks be honest. Great. It looks great because John Brawley shot it. But you know what? That camera was not a piece of crap. It is really good. It's a really There's good. There's nothing wrong camera. with Blackmagic. I had my issues with early Blackmagic cameras. The you know the the production camera and their their first uh, what was it the 2.5K camera that they came out with mm-hmm. and the early pocket camera. I was not a fan of any of those cameras. Uh, and I and I used all of them actually. Uh, for for several projects, I thought that they, you know, like the images were okay, but there were issues with ISO, blah blah blah. They seem to have got that all under control. Also, the original Ursa was like way too big. Well, they in the the latest generation of everything they've done, the new Pocket 4K, Pocket 6K, the the Ursa yeah. Mini Pro G2, and now the 12K. All these cameras, besides the fact that they're available at Hot Red Cameras, uh, and oh, and that's the other thing, the 12K camera ships in like a couple of weeks, so you're not going to have long, we're not going to have long to be the peanut gallery and pontificate about this, I mean, it's going to be real, it's going to be uh, in in my hands in a couple of weeks. Speak for yourself, I could be the peanut gallery for eternity <laughs> on this. Well, I'm going to have that camera soon. We're going to we're going to do some of our own stuff with it. But uh, we're going to put the link to John Brawley so people can watch his little Vimeo test. And he does a a bunch of different models, uh, a lot of different skin tones, different types of lighting. And it all looks amazing. And yes, John Brawley, really talented. So I have no doubt that he can make a, you know, 1980s pixel vision camera look fantastic. But I don't think he had to work that hard for this. I think he did it very simply. And the the camera really shines. So I think that more interested in what he would do with a pixel vision camera now that you mentioned that. (laughs) And now there's going to be some people furiously Googling, what's Pixel Vision? What are you talking about? Yes. Pixel Vision was awesome, and there's a movie called Naja that used it extensively. You should go check it out. Anyway. <laughs> and Slacker with Richard Linkletter way back when. So, Oh, um, I didn't know that they used it on Slacker. I thought yeah, that was all 16. No, there's a Pixel Vision segment. I remember some guy goes, hey, check uh, out my Pixel Vision camera, and they hand it to Oh, you're to right, you're right, you're right. This whole thing. So. Naja, is, uh, it's got like Peter Fonda in. It's a vampire film that I think David Lynch executive produced. And they shot large segments of it on the Pixel Vision. It shot on, it recorded on audio cassettes. That's right. Video on audio cassettes in very, very low resolution, Smart black and white. Smart idea. Super cool. Yeah. All anyway. Right. 
So, so Ben, what is your short end this week? I mean, since I feel I, like we spent so much time. It. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, my short end is, uh, I'll keep it short too. It's, it's more of a shout out. Um, there's a really awesome uh, website called script chat and they uh, bring writers on, uh, and have them, uh, talk about what they do and, uh, they do it a lot on Twitter. So they'll have this, uh, basically an ongoing dialogue on Twitter and then they'll save the transcripts and put it up on their website. And Bob DeRosa, who uh, I'm currently working with on a super secret horror audio project and who we did 20 seconds to live with, uh, two years ago, we did a horror fiction podcast called, uh, video palace for shutter and script chat had us on today. So, uh, check out us, but also just go check out script chat. Yeah. Uh, if you just do look for the hashtag script chat, you'll find it. Or if you go to their website, you can find, uh, transcripts of of uh, interviews but like if it what's cool about it is anyone can go on it i don't believe it it i mean it, it can't cost anything it's on twitter and uh when they bring the uh screenwriters on uh most of which who, who are way more accomplished as writers than i am uh you can just hit them up with questions and 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 it's it's really a cool free-flowing uh forum it was a really nice, subtle plug for your own uh, script chat in there. So you, you love script chat, and you you got to be on it. You can so. skip right over mine. Actually, ignore me. You know, I don't I don't really have anything of that great a substance to say. But Bob Duros is. Uh, I'm I'm just always leaning on Bob. But you, you don't want to you don't want our our listeners to go listen to you to go hear you. No, but you know? uh, but uh, I mean, like go ch- go check it out. I think it's really cool that they're doing this thing where they bring on you know writers. Uh, again, most of them way more accomplished than me. Are, and, are writers important for this whole process? I I don't really understand. Stand. No, no, they have AIs that do all that. Okay, now. good. Yeah, hundred monkeys. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah, we have AIs that do that, and they also do the acting. So, uh, and then they also watch the end product. Oh, that's so great. You don't, you don't. We don't. You. You and I. Are, we're off the hook. We don't have to watch movies anymore because we have computers that do all the watching now. And critics can then and AI critics, critics can, can totally totally can, critics can control. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, they well they obviously have bots that control anybody, so that's and, not and they soon will have deep fake identities. So anyone who does happen to stumble into this, they'll be like, oh, "Man, that 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 critic is really hot." So. This is like a deeply Jim Jarmusch apocalypse kind of a kind of a thing here, where it's like we just have a series of dorky computers wa- making talking to each for, other, yeah, oh, yeah, for other dorky computers. Like, yeah. there's no people involved in this at all. People are off. We're having picnics or uh, extinct. We're, we're too, how, how dark you want to go here it's it's, it's the post-apocalyptic I, I like i actually like your version better that's pretty cool <laughs> uh anyway yeah so uh check out script chat though they're really nice i'm totally i'm totally checking it out <laughs> all of that dark road that we just went down to give a nice plug to script chat thanks uh, script chat thanks script chat <laughs> <laughs> hey ben let's thank some people all right. Well, first off, we need to thank Alana Cody for all the work she does, including, as you described earlier, making the little previews that go on Instagram. So please subscribe to our Instagram. It's free and we don't spam anybody ever. I don't think we ever have. No, never. No, we don't. We don't even we don't. We're not pushy about this stuff. No, uh, uh, by, by evidence of our 993 people following us on Instagram. So. <laughs> uh, we also want to thank uh, Kay Zalatrakshi, who composed all the music you heard in this episode, and who, uh, this might be an episode he would listen to. I think he'd be into this. I, I think he might. I think he might. He was a fan of The Mandalorian, if I remember, so maybe he'll, he'll tune in. Also, Kay's was the person who first told me I should check out Unreal Engine, so I downloaded it, and then months later said, uh, you're not going to, you're going to have no fun with Unreal Engine. I wouldn't use it if I were you, and I... <laughs> deleted it it's only a matter of time between before Kays is deep faking his way you know and in, into the world i'm, I'm sure 
Maybe K's is a deep fake from the future. Ooh. <laughs> and a, a composer. Time, he himself is a time traveling deep fake. Hey, that's why he that's why he can do everything. Hey, let's thank Ben Katz, who is actually doing something right now. He's taking our words and making us not sound like complete idiots. Thank you doing, very much. Very yeah. much, Ben Katz. <laughs> yeah, thank you. And and welcome back to LA, Ben Katz. We're excited to have you back. LA missed you. LA missed you, even if we can't be in the same room for the moment. So, you know, it'll only be six months to seven or eight years before we can kind of resume what we were doing before. Yeah. And in case anyone hasn't noticed, we've actually been turning out these a little bit more frequently, which is why the, the days are slightly off. We try to cram in a couple extra there while the uh, the Emmys were, were going on, our Emmys uh, consideration still happening. But we will definitely see you all or hear you all or you'll hear us anyway in a week. Awesome. Thank you very much. This has been the Cinematography Podcast, presented by Hot Rod Cameras. Find your next camera, lens, or accessory on the web at hotrodcameras.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes and connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.